Pilgrimage is premised on the idea that the sacred is not entirely immaterial, but that there is a geography of spiritual power. Pilgrimage walks a delicate line between the spiritual and the material in its emphasis on the story and its setting. Though the search is for spirituality, it is pursued in terms of the most material details of where the Buddha was born or where Christ died, where the relics are or the holy water flows. Or perhaps it reconciles the spiritual and the material, for to go on pilgrimage is to make the body and its actions express the desires and beliefs of the soul. Pilgrimage unites belief with action, thinking with doing, and it makes sense that this harmony is achieved when the sacred has material presence and location. Protestants, as well as the occasional Buddhist and Jew, have objected to pilgrimages as a kind of icon worship and asserted that the spiritual should be sought within as something wholly immaterial rather than out in the world. There is a symbiosis between journey and arrival in Christian pilgrimage, as there is in mountaineering. To travel without arriving would be as incomplete as to arrive without having traveled. To walk there is to earn it through laboriousness and through the transformation that comes during a journey. Pilgrimages make it possible to move physically through the exertions of one's body, step by step, toward those intangible spiritual goals that are otherwise so hard to grasp. We are eternally perplexed by how to move toward forgiveness or healing or truth, but we know how to walk from here to there, however arduous the journey. Two, we tend to imagine life as a journey, and going on an actual expedition takes hold of that image and makes it concrete, acts it out with the body and the imagination in a world whose geography has become spiritualized. The walker toiling along a road towards some distant place is one of the most compelling and universal images of what it means to be human depicting the individual as small and solitary in a large world, reliant on the strength of body and will. In pilgrimage, the journey is radiant with hope that arrival at the tangible destination will bring spiritual benefits with it. The pilgrim has achieved a story of his or her own, and in this way, too, becomes part of the religion made up of stories of travel and transformation. Tolstoy captures this in a longing that comes to Princess Maria in War and Peace as she feeds the myriad Russian pilgrims that pass by her home. Often as she listened to the pilgrims' tales, she was so fired by their simple speech natural to them, but to her full of deep meaning, that several times she was on the point of abandoning everything and running away from home. In imagination, she already pictured herself dressed in coarse rags and with her wallet and staff, walking along a dusty road.
she has imagined her life of genteel seclusion become clear, sparse, and intense with a purpose she can move toward. Walking expresses both the simplicity and the pers- purposefulness of the pilgrim. As Nancy Frey writes of the long-distance pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, when pilgrims begin to walk Several things usually begin to happen to their perceptions of the world, which continue over the course of the journey. They develop a changing sense of time, a heightening of the senses, and a new awareness of their bodies and the landscape. A young German man expressed it this way, In the experience of walking, each step is a thought. You can't escape yourself. In going on pilgrimage, one has left behind the complications of one's place in the world. Family, attachments, rank, duties. And become a walker among walkers. For there is no aristocracy among pilgrims, save that of achievement and dedication. The Turners talk about pilgrimage as a liminal state a state of being between one's past and future identities, and thus outside the established order, in a state of possibility. Liminality comes from the Latin limin, a threshold, and a pilgrim has both symbolically and physically stepped over such a line. Liminars are stripped of status and authority, removed from a social structure, maintained and sanctioned by power and force, and leveled to a homogeneous social state through discipline and ordeal. Their secular powerlessness may be compensated for by a sacred power, however, the power of the weak, derived on the one hand from the resurgence of nature when structural power is removed, and on the other from the reception of sacred knowledge. Much of what has been bound by social structure is liberated, notably the sense of comradeship and communion, or communitas. Inside the labyrinth, the two-dimensional surface ceased to be open space one could move across anyhow. Keeping to the winding path became important. And with one's eyes fixed upon it, the space of the labyrinth became large and compelling. The very first length of path after the entrance almost reaches the center of the eleven rings, then turns away to snake round and round, nearer and farther, never so close as that initial promise until long afterward, when the walker has slowed down and become absorbed in the journey which, even on a maze 40 feet in diameter like this, can take a quarter hour or more. That circle became a world whose rules I lived by, and I understood the moral of mazes. Sometimes you have to turn your back on goals to get there. Sometimes you're farthest away when you're closest, Sometimes the only way is the long one. After that careful walking and looking down, the stillness of arrival was deeply moving. 
I looked up at last to see that white clouds like talons and feathers were tumbling east in a blue sky. It was breathtaking to realize that in the labyrinth, metaphors and meanings could be conveyed spatially. That when you seem farthest from your destination is when you suddenly arrive in a very pat truth in words but a profound one to find with your feet. That's an awkward sentence. (laughs) The poet Marianne Moore famously wrote of real toads in imaginary gardens, and the labyrinth offers us the possibility of being real creatures in symbolic space. I had thought of a children's story as I walked, and the children's books that I loved best were full of characters falling into books and pictures that became real, wandering through gardens where the statues came to life, and most famously, crossing over to the other side of the mirror, where chess pieces, flowers, and animals all were alive and temperamental. These books suggested that the boundaries between the real and the represented were not particularly fixed, and magic happened when one crossed over. In such spaces as the labyrinth, we cross over. We are really traveling, even if the destination is only symbolic. And this is in an entirely different register than is thinking about traveling or looking at a picture of a place we might wish to travel to. For the real is in this context nothing more or less than what we inhabit bodily. A labyrinth is a symbolic journey or a map of the route to salvation, but it is a map we can really walk on, blurring the difference between map and world. If the body is the register of the real and reading with one's feet is real in a way, reading with one's eyes alone is not. And sometimes the map is the territory. Labyrinths are not merely Christian devices, though they always represent some kind of journey, sometimes one of initiation, death and rebirth, or salvation, sometimes of courtship. Some seem merely to signify the complexity of any journey, the difficulty of finding or knowing one's way. They were much mentioned by the ancient Greeks, and although the legendary labyrinth of Crete in which the Minotaur was imprisoned has never been found, and probably never existed, the shape now called the Cretan labyrinth appeared on its coins. Other labyrinths have been found, carved in the rock in Sardinia, cleared in the stony desert surface in southern Arizona and California, made of mosaic by the Romans. In Scandinavia, there are almost 500 known labyrinths made of stones laid out upon the earth. Until the 20th century, fishermen would walk them before putting out to sea to ensure good catches or favorable winds. In England, turf mazes, mazes cut into the earth, 
were used by young people for erotic games, often in which a boy ran toward a girl at the center. And the twists and turns of the maze seemed to symbolize courtship's complexities. The much better known hedge mazes of that country are a later, more aristocratic in- innovation of the Renaissance garden. Many who have written about mazes and labyrinths distinguish between the two of them. Mazes, including most garden mazes, have many branchings and are made to perplex those who enter, whereas a labyrinth has only one route, and anyone who stays with it can find the paradise of the center and retrace the route to the exit. Another metaphorical moral seems built into these two structures, for the maze offers the confusions of free will without a clear destination, the labyrinth an inflexible route to salvation.